Hello, I'm Mike Wheeler, co-host of One Step Ahead. And I'm Kim Leary. The other co-host. Um, and we're moving along and generating episodes here. Kim, what's up for you in the coming days? Well, we have a weekend ahead of us, a long weekend. I'm really excited and looking forward to that, though, quite frankly, part of it's going to be involved, is will involve my sitting in front of my computer and getting a head start on the semester. When do your classes start? Not for a few weeks yet, but I'm teaching a couple of new classes, so a lot of preparation. Uh -huh. What are the classes? So I'm teaching a new class at the Kennedy School on teams and public impact, and very much hoping that you and our guest today, Frank Barrett, might do a guest appearance later in the semester. How about you, Mike? What's on tap for you? Well, nothing of uh, that great moment for the world, but uh, we're looking forward to uh, our younger daughter coming down with her kids from Vermont and spending uh, some time at the beach, no doubt. Uh, so we'll be enjoying the the weekend, I think, some distance from the computer. I commiserate so. with you that you have to uh, have to do that. You have a grandson. Angus. Angus is five and a half and has a fabulous sense of humor. And his little sister, um, Isabel, will turn three in just a few days. And she is a ball of fire. So we're going to have a good time. So I bet there's a lot of trying to be one step ahead with Angus and his little sister. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Good luck on that. But just in terms of where we are today, I mean, both of us will be involved in this conversation. Uh, we've spoken in the past with Frank Barrett, who's on the faculty at Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, but is visiting Harvard this year. He has a book, Yes to the Mess. A terrific uh, book which takes what he's learned from jazz as a performer um, and applies it to organizational behavior and other issues. You'd mentioned this course on teams um, where you're looking for social impact and so forth. So I'm along for the ride. I'm sure I'll jump in on some questions here. But um, let's bring Frank into the conversation. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. We're delighted to have you back at HBS. You're a visiting scholar this year? I am. Nice to be here. Thank you. That's terrific. What will you be working on this year while you're here? Well, I'm writing a uh, bi biography of the Ar Marcellus family. Um, it started off as a biography of Ellis Marcellus, the father of the family, um, but um, realized since this family has generated four excellent musicians. There's something about the family itself that's very exciting. So I'm um, writing the story of the family. So the Marcellus team, in a way. Marcellus team. Great. Yeah. Team Marcellus. Sounds, that's terrific. Sounds like an indie car. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden. <laughs> I remember, and maybe apocryphal, but there was a time when, and I guess in jazz you say the first name. You say Winton. You don't yes, say Winton right. Marcellus. First name. I've been in his presence a couple of times. He doesn't know me from a hole in the ground, where he's come to know you fairly well. But I remember him telling the story that when he was 18, rather than going off to college, he was going to take his horn and a few bucks in his pocket and see what he could do musically. And Ellis, the father, said to him, are you going to be okay? And Wynn said, yeah, I'm going to be okay. And his father said again, are you going to be okay? And went and said, yes, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Father and son, you know, cutting the cord, all yeah. that sort of stuff. The father wants to know that the kid's going to be okay. So I have another story that 
you know, it complicates that. And it's amazing. Witten didn't come into music until late, actually. It was in high school that he got pretty serious about it. Well, actually, probably middle school. And he was contemplating whether he was going to make a living as a musician. People were warning him that it's really hard to make a living in music. You need to have something to fall back on. Because he'd watched his father kind of struggle. The family was not well off financially. The only income was Ellis's teaching and his playing at night. And so people were warning him, you better have something else to fall back on. And his father said to him, if you decide to be a musician, make sure you have nothing else to fall back on. Isn't that interesting? Well, I heard it. There's a, there's a wonderful HBO series called Masterclass. And Winton has one of them with three, I think it's three, not four, young musicians. And there's a point at which the pianist stumbles, and even I can hear it. And Winton said, so you know that happened, right? And the pianist said, yeah, I know. I was very aware of that, and that didn't help me going forward. And Winton said, if you fall off a building, you can't fall back onto it. You either got to grab something or learn how to fly. That's good. And I love that. That's just yeah. about, that's sort of in the yes to the mess uh, mode of your book. That's the mess we're talking about. Things happen that you couldn't have predicted that you haven't done before, and you got to step ahead. So speaking of flying and sailing ahead, you're a professor of organizational behavior at the Naval Postgraduate School. Tell us about that. How did that happen, Frank? That was a fluke. I'm born and raised in Cleveland, and I have, you know, like 50 50 first cousins all live within about five miles of each other. And um, when I saw job openings, I saw this place in California and thought I would apply just because it's about time one of us got out of the ranch. (laughs) And uh, it was a kind of a fluke. I thought I'd only do it for a year or two, and that was 32 years ago. So you got out of the ranch and onto ships and planes, maybe? ships and planes, right. That's That's the connection, yeah. So you're a... A scholar, you're a biographer, you're a jazz musician. You wear a lot of different hats. Yeah, I yeah. guess I do. Yeah, <laughs> guilty. You're yeah. Really, guilty like as charged. Yeah. Guilty yeah. as charged. Maybe you can tell us some about who comes to the Naval Postgraduate School. Sure. Who are your students? Well, we have a couple different curricula. The one I teach, and I teach mostly Marines who are getting their degrees in information sciences, but I also teach in other curricula. We have an EMBA program where I teach a team's course, like you. And the one where I really focus on the... I, I, I introduce the jazz into all these. But the one uh, that is sort of the most courageous on my part, if I say so, we have an executive leadership program in innovation, and that's where flag officers, you know, uh, two- and three-star admirals come, and, and uh, I do a four-hour workshop on jazz improvisation. And at first, they're, they're a little shocked because they can't figure out what does this have to do with anything. But by the end, they love it. Um, it's probably the highest rated of all the, all the modules they get, partially because it's so unexpected. So that's the story I want to hear more about. Flag officers and people who are commanding ships and looking to be uh, a better service to their country. And they walk into your classroom and you offer them jazz and they are shocked. They're shocked at first, yeah. 
Most people don't, they think that they don't like jazz because they don't know how to listen to it. And I think one of the things that happens is through the over four hours, they learn to listen differently. And then they see it as pretty amazing. How does that happen in four hours? Well, I break down the principles that make jazz work and try and illustrate each one of them with a musical sample of some kind, either me playing or Duke Ellington or Miles Davis. And I go through these principles, the seven principles in the book, and they suddenly start to see the complexity and the miracle of how it, how dangerous it is. It could fall apart at any moment, and what an accomplishment it is when it works. What are some of the principles? Oh, funny you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, one is um, called affirmative competence, which is you know say yes to the mess. But prior to that, even is the value of unlearning. So, in order to improvise, you have to unlearn your own habits. It doesn't, that right off the bat catches them off guard because no one talks to them about unlearning. But what they do resonate with right away is, I say to them, are there, do any of you back in your own commands, are there any routines that you stay loyal to even though they've outlived their usefulness? And they all vigorously nod. And sometimes I have them write them down and then come back to it at the end. So yeah, mastering the art of unlearning. And then secondly is this notion of yes to the mess, an affirmative assumptions that whatever is happening will lead somewhere positive that's the mother load that's if you don't have that radical yes nothing works there's a saying in the military i gather that all plans go out the window after yeah. the first shot yeah that's right yep so that's the mess that's the mess i assume the mess isn't just in combat though it's uh, you mentioned innovation and you talk about change as well kim i'm curious what you say and what you have them do that that wins them over so so quickly four hours is fast to me yeah i could use more time <laughs> <laughs> so could we all um yeah so i think what they realize is they can do things in back in their own commands to nurture serendipity i guess that's a good way to say it I call it, it was the phrase I use, they can become architects of serendipity, that they can make it possible for people to have happy accidents. And they realize that some of those conditions, for example, back the point is that, you know, expect mistakes, because if you're asking people to experiment, there's going to be mistakes. Um, don't, don't punish uh, errors when people are experimenting. You know, you punish careless errors. Carelessness is intolerable, and there's some places where experimentation doesn't work. I mean, if you're on the flight deck and 12 planes take off, you don't say, well, if we get 11 out of 12 landing, that's a pretty good day. It's, that's not, it's a non-negotiable. Uh, there's some things, you, you, some routines you stay loyal to. Um, but usually, though, we overlearn routines, and we need, so when we ask people to experiment, there's going to be mistakes. So there has to be a mindset of, Mistakes is an opportunity for learning rather than opportunity to punish. And they, they get that. And I, they also talk about um, minimal structures. That also gets their attention because bureaucracies love structures. Um, and I talk about, is it possible to have, or the phrase minimal consensus. You know, we talk about we have to have consensus. But, you know, in jazz, too much consensus is dangerous. 
So the question is, can you just have enough consensus, just enough agreement to allow people to branch out? And they get that. It's, pretty, it's, it's a mindset shift for them. So I'd love to hear about how you, when you're working with fellow musicians, you get into that uh, experience of hitting not just a groove from Mm. the past, but a groove in real time that lets something creative just flourish, and how that might be similar to what your officers have to contend with. After all, they're trying to bring a group of late adolescents in many cases and make them into sailors and make them into Marines. What can you tell us about the task in both? Well, in in jazz, there's this notion of, um, I call it provocative competence, that a leader can create conditions whereby people can experiment beyond their comfort zone. It is a leadership principle that says, Pay attention to the edge of people's comfort level and their habits, and then introduce a disruption so that they pay attention in new ways. And so um, it wakes them up. Uh, I I could tell the story of Miles Davis, but since you asked about Navy, I'll tell you a Navy story. And then Miles Davis. Okay, then I'll come back to Miles Davis. There's a drill on ships called the Oscar drill. The Oscar is the name given to an inflatable dummy that they use to do rescue operations. So they'll throw the dummy overboard, and then somebody who's the the officer on deck has to steer the ship just the right way in a figure eight, because it it takes about a mile to get the the ship to turn around and come alongside the... uh, the Oscar, the inflatable dummy. It, it's it's not easy to do. It's <clears throat> but not it's, easy to move those big institutions. It's not, not easy, but every you have to pass that in order to uh, get your what we call surface warfare pin. So, uh, well, the captain of one of the ships had noticed that the guys were sort of lackadaisical about it. They'd fallen into routines. So he was on deck. Um, and he took off his shoes and socks and said, hey, guys, don't blow this one. And he jumped overboard. Put himself right in the mess. Yeah. Boy, did they pay attention. And they, they rescued him. Now, what's interesting is when he got back on shore, one of the guys called his boss and reported him. And he was brought in and punished for that because he put the ship at risk. And then the boss of the guy who punished him overrode that and said, I thought it was a brilliant idea. I, I love the one bit of caution that he took off his shoes. Yes, I know. I, was gonna, I thought, why shoes? Yeah. <laughs> I'll risk my you life give from, my shoes. Gift from your mother or something? Why? It was so special about your damn shoes. <laughs> but that, that is a great story. And if you think about hierarchical organizations... Uh, some of which have very elaborate procedures and so forth. If you if you color beyond the lines, you're asking for trouble. I think it's easy, and Kim, you know far more about this than I, to tell people who work for you and with you, tell them, you know, we want to experiment. If you make mistakes, we just want to be sure you learn from it. But I would assume that people would be cautious about that. You, you say that, you may even mean it, but when it comes to a mistake where there are some costs to it, I'm going to be told to stand in the corner. So those mistakes that people mm-hmm. make as a matter of course when mm-hmm. they're playing jazz, and of course as a 
when they're in, in organizations, in the military and so forth, they do have a cost to them. They do. So how do you make the mistake and learn in real time? What do you tell people that helps them, whether they're your fellow members of your quartet or yeah. flag officers? In yesterday, the message, I'll give an example. It, you have to model it. So it's not enough to tell your people, look, you can... I want you to learn from your mistakes. It's, espousing it is almost a waste of your breath. It has to be modeled. So I tell a story, one example in, um, in a hospital um, where it was an operating room um, where there's a built-in hierarchy. Where physicians have a hierarchy, as you know, and, and most of the physicians were men. Most of the nurses were women. Um, and so there's the gender hierarchy and the status hierarchy. And when, and at the end of the day, this group w was mandated to talk about what mistakes they noticed or what mistakes they made and how they could learn from it. And one day, a surgeon stood up and said, I made a mistake today. I accidentally left sponges in one of my patients. And you could hear a pin drop in the room because the surgeon is God. And he said openly that he made a careless mistake. And he apologized and said, I want to make sure that never happens again. So once that happened, it became safer for people to talk about um, errors along the way. And hospitals are high reliability systems. There are 60,000 deaths a year due to human error inside hospitals. That's a high reliability organization. There's a real pressure to make it look like you're not making mistakes. There's a pressure to hide mistakes. So the... Um, sort of the press has in the opposite direction has to be equally strong and the fastest way to do that is to, to model it as a leader if i can hop hop in because you had asked before about coming back to miles davis there's a classic example that you use in my mba class of mistakes and doing the unfamiliar i'm thinking of the first cut on Kind of Blue, the best-selling jazz album of all time. Yes. Their first cut is So What? So What? Can you tell the story and, and where mistakes fit into that? Sure. It was, at the time, it was 1959. It, it was one of the most famous jazz quintets in history, although most of the musicians at that point had not been heard of. Um, John Coltrane was on tenor sax. I won't go through all the names, but uh, Bill Evans was on piano. Both these guys ended up making a huge impact on jazz, obviously. Um, but they had been playing bebop music all through the 50s, as most jazz musicians were doing in the United States. And Miles had been listening to um, Debussy and Stravinsky uh, and got an idea to try and experiment and so they came into the recording studio and um, he said, okay, we're not going to do chord changes anymore. And he laid out the Dorian mode as the way we're going to, and two different Dorian modes. So it was in D, D Dorian and E flat Dorian. And we're just going to play those modes over and over again. They hadn't done this before. It was, it's an unusual mode. It's built on fourths instead of thirds. We're used to harmony in thirds, but the Dorian mode is built on fourths. So it sounds a little Eastern in a way. So with no preparation, he turned to the recording engineer and said, hit it, and everything you hear on this album is uh, first take. They're wandering around, discovering the world as they're creating it, and 
you can hear in their experimentations, in particular, John Coltrane, you can hear him try out a phrase and he'll take it so far and then stop and he'll try it again, you know, and he'll try it again. You could just hear him thinking out loud. Now, you could say, were those mistakes? I, I don't know. He was, getting, he was getting clearer and clearer every time he, he rephrased it. But there is a glaring mistake. Um, when, the, uh, when the solos start, the drummer, Jimmy Cobb, thinks that he should do what a drummer does in bebop, and he, he bangs the cymbal which is always the way a first solo starts in bebop. It's like a sort of a, a kick in the rear saying, okay, you're on now. But this isn't bebop, and it's, and it's slow. And as soon as he did it, he thought, oh, man, this, this is awful. We're going to have to take this over. And Miles said, nope, we're not taking anything over. We're keeping it just as it is. And as now drummers talk about it as the cymbal clash heard around the world. It's the most famous cymbal crash in um jazz history. You can hear it right off the bat as soon as Miles starts his first solo. So Frank, I think I'm getting an experience of what it might be like to be in your classroom because oh. you've taken us through these wonderful moments, critical moments where musicians are right, radically present with one another as they're creating and improvising all the way to flag officers on ships who jumped literally into the sea in order to make a point and are reprimanded and then rehabilitated. Yeah. And to physicians and surgeons who are making mistakes and trying to ultimately for the purpose of making fewer mistakes, but having the honesty and authenticity to show us where that mistake exists. So that's a bunch of different worlds that you've yeah. put in conversation with one another. So I want to take us back, or have you take us back, to being at the Naval Postgraduate School, and you're a jazz musician, you're expected to teach organizational behavior. Did you have to sell this idea, or did it emerge naturally over the course of your teaching that jazz had a lot to tell us about what it means to be adaptive when we're practicing leadership? Well, I didn't do it until after I was tenured. Ah, <laughs> talk about hierarchies. <laughs> um, well, I think it's it's funny the way metaphor works, right? You, at first, it, it seems like a, a dim notion, and you get these nascent images of what it might awaken. This metaphor is bottomless. All of a sudden, I just started to see more and more connections. I'm still seeing it, and. So I just I don't do it the same way I did it when I first introduced it. I think maybe I probably first introduced it maybe 15 years ago, um, and then do it regularly in my class maybe in the last seven or eight years. And every time, and I ask students to write about it, and it just seems to wake things up uh, for people. Um, Metaphor is a very powerful learning tool. Um, so you wake people up and encourage them to do something that may be antithetical to what they were expecting. I, I, you know, they don't do it in my classroom, but I encourage them. I think the payoff for them, this is interesting, you're making me think about this. The payoff for them, because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a traditional classroom. So, and I, I teach the case study method most of the time. So they, they're not asked to do experiential things. I used to teach experientially. Now I do almost all case method. Um, I think the payoff is when they go back home to their commands that they lead differently. Mm -hmm. um, and in part of it is um, a tolerance for ambiguity, um, being patient with um, people as they experiment and discover, 
you know, seeing each person or each team or each group as sort of a growth project um, that, and they can support that growth uh, in, under certain conditions. I think that's probably the payoff. Um, yeah. that, that sure sounds right, being yeah. able to develop that sense of radical presence. Yeah. And I, I, let me ask you one more thing, though, about sure. this. Um, it, it's not, you're, you're not saying to folks, just make mistakes and no. then work your way out of it. You're saying something more than that, that mistakes are going to happen in the practice of leadership or in the practice of playing music. And you have to do what when that mistake happens? Yeah, so um, what, a couple of things. One is um, you, get, you, have a, you have a supporting cast. Um, you're not just the soloist making a mistake. There's also um, there's a role for followers it's a different way to think about followership. It's, uh, I call it noble followership uh, or followership is a noble calling. Usually you'd say, gosh, I, I want to raise my son to be a good follower. You wouldn't think that. We don't have a language for followership, but in jazz we do. And it's called comping, which is short for a company. And the job of the, those comping is to m help the soloist think out loud. So, they're sort of a safety net in a way, or they're supporting their thinking through time. So if the soloist makes a mistake, the people comping have this minimal structure, they just keep playing, and they, uh, they keep, just keep following the chord changes. And sometimes it means you make a mistake, you actually, what jazz players often do is just repeat it, because in retrospect, it sounds right. And when you repeat it, it makes it sound like you did it on purpose the first time. Or you repeat it and realize that there are some possibilities here you hadn't noticed before because you didn't choose to go that way. It's as if you're hearing someone else play. That's happened many times. You make uh, you hit a, a bum note and think, well, where this? Where's where could I take this now? Uh, and it adds to the excitement. Having said that, there are embarrassing fall down, fall apart mistakes. Um, you know, you play two people playing in the wrong key would be a a bad one. Um, so I have a story about that too, if you want to hear absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> oh boy, I was playing with the Tommy Dorsey band, and it was the year was nineteen. It was wait, it was New Year's Eve, nineteen seventy nine, and we were in the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, and it was on TV. And uh, this was only my third day on the band, and I am not a very good. I'm still not a very good sight reader. Um, then I was really not good. I was a bad sight reader. And uh, we, were play we played four sets. We had previously played, played with them two nights before, and we played two sets. So this meant when we started the third set, this is all new music. And we were playing this song called um, Second Time Around. Do you know that song? Mm, yes, I do. Love gets easier the second time around. So um, we were playing, and I'm reading the chord changes and following it, and... Um, I have my back or to the side to the to the audience, but the leader, Buddy Morrow, is the trombone player, is right about ten feet away from me, facing the audience. And um I I notice um all of a sudden the band drops out and I can hear me and the bass and the drums and it does not sound good. And um Buddy Morrow walks sideways towards me until he gets right next to me and he and there's a spotlight on him so I'm coming more and more into the light and he leans he still looks at the audience straight ahead without turning his head to me he leans his head to the side and says 
D flat, asshole. <laughs> and I looked up and realized the key had changed and I was playing in the key of D. It did not sound good. That's a non-negotiable mistake. That's mm -hmm. the kind of thing you shouldn't do and I probably shouldn't use that word. Are you gonna beep that? I don't know. Yeah, Sorry. Non-negotiable? No, 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 we, no, no, we can keep that. Yeah, you know, that there's, was a moment. There, there's humiliating. <laughs> well, there are layers and layers to what you're saying, Frank, it strikes yeah. me. This whole idea that if you are comping yeah. and you're in the midst of working on something that requires a lot of other people and suddenly you're only hearing your own voice, there may be a problem. There may be a problem. There may be a problem. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And then, you know, t tell us more about the way in which experimenting and making mistakes can be kind of a f blurry boundary, right? Sure can, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, that's why I think it's funny you use the phrase blurry boundary. Um, that's why I think minimal structure is important or minimal consensus that you don't want too much structure so that if a mistake happens or if some experimental idea happens, we're all free to embellish it and go in a certain direction. If you overstructure things um, and people rely on routines, then your experimentation is for naught. So there's the non-negotiable minimal structures, and we call it chord changes in jazz, or in, and also the rhythm, the beat, the tempo is a non-negotiable. You, you know, you can you know that there's going to be a beat if it's in four-four time. You know what the time is going to be like. And um, everybody has to live within that small framework. And then what they do from then on in, you just don't know. It's 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 not. It's funny because people don't don't people who don't know jazz find this astonishing that often jazz musicians play together who've never met, never met each other, and they're just on the bandstand for the first time, or they don't like each other. I have some great gossip stories that I won't tell, but from famous jazz musicians who couldn't stand each other but could play together well. And what, what allows this to happen is this minimal structure. Um, it's a non-negotiable, it's sort of an impersonal, I call it impersonal trust. You trust the minimal structure and it allows you to coordinate through time. Even if people don't like each other, they have a commitment to the music and the yes. ethics of the music. Is that That's right. a fair translation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and they can work within that system with yeah. some kind of minimal supports. Right. You, know, you know, we mentioned that it was the third time you'd played with that band in Las Vegas, was it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the third time, the third time or the second time. or yeah. yeah. So do you play differently with a brand new group or do you need a couple of jam sessions to get aligned? Um, well, it depends. Sometimes if you're terrified like I was then I became very very careful uh in that in future sets and for about a day or for about two or three nights I, I was I was became very careful and and boring um but usually even if you're playing with the the same people you should be doing something different you should be stretching out and trying things you've never tried before um Jazz musicians can get impatient with each other if they start to hear the same things over and over again, or else they'll just move on into another band. Mm. Um, I think that happens with organizational teams, too. I think it does. I think it does. There's a pressure to want to play it safe. And, and there, sometimes it's important to play it safe, but you, you pay a price if you err too much on that side. Well, we're practicing what we preach here. We didn't have a script you know, we didn't know where it would go. But we did have a minimal structure in the sense, not so minimal, that we know each other well personally. 
and we've read your work, we've seen you teach and so forth, but there are things I heard today um, that I hadn't heard before. Really? Yes. Oh, good. Yes. Good. <laughs> Got to have to make up some new ones. <laughs> yeah, I think um, that's absolutely right. You know, we, as you have are leading us to, to, to listen with, as we say in the clinical profession, our third ears, yes. uh, a third ear that's inclined to recognizing that all the skills that you deploy in playing jazz are not only relevant to organizations, mm -hmm. but they require us to think about moral leadership as well. Moral leadership. And mm. about the courage that it takes mm. in order to risk connecting with other people, yeah. hearing what they have to say, in music or in words, yeah. and whether or not you like them, uh, you may have a purpose that can be achieved by working together. That's right. That's great. Well, thank you, Frank. And Mike, thank you. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Indeed. Well, thank you for listening to another episode. We're sponsored by our website, Negotiation 360. And the way you find it is very simple. Just the letter N for negotiation, 360.expert, N360.expert. And you can find other resources that we have posted there, papers, um, information about online courses, things that we're working on. And we look forward to engaging with you online. Till next time. <laughs>